Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And as Aiden was saying, we're in the middle of the series, Honest to God, Real People Praying Real Prayers Out of Real Difficulty. We've looked at Elijah who cried out to God in his discouragement. We looked at uh, King Hezekiah last week and who cried out to God in desperation and God moved and answered those prayers in some pretty unique and fantastic ways. Well, in prayer, we have this amazing opportunity and privilege to talk to our Creator, to, to share our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our, our struggles and problems. He wants us to talk to Him. He desires that we know Him, that we trust Him, that we make Him known. But prayer can be hard for us, especially when we struggle with the right words to say or, or what to talk to God about. Or, or maybe it's uh, we pray words without meaning. Or maybe pray without passion or honesty. Or, or sometimes we struggle with prayer when we are simply praying to convince God to give us more stuff. So we've learned that prayer, though, is, is a lot less about asking for something and a lot more about enjoying someone. And as I get to know God better and learn to trust his intentions for me, my heart begins to reflect his heart, and I begin to ask for things that we both want. And so real prayer is talking honestly with God in the context of a very real relationship with God. God wants you to talk to him, to know more of him, to share your life, to be passionate about the things he's prioritized for himself and for us. Well, this morning, I'm going to be asking some questions to help us determine our prayer life, in our prayer, in our, in our worship. Is it driving us closer to God or further away from him? A couple of years ago, I, I went golfing with one of my buddies, uh, Jason. He golfs a lot, and um, <clears throat> he's part of, I think, maybe one or two leagues during the summer, and then during the winter, he goes down to Florida, golfs a couple weeks, uh, even has a, like a driving range type thing in his barn so he can practice during the wintertime. So he's an avid golfer. And then there's me. <laughs> now he enjoys golfing with me because he says I provide an entertainment value he doesn't get with any of his other partners. <laughs> and here's the reason why. Uh, we were out golfing and it was a par five, a long par five, and I thought, you know, I'm going to have to hit this thing just right, hit it straight and as long as I can. I'm going to have to hit this thing hard. And so I teed up my ball, and I took a couple practice swings. I aimed it, and then I swung as hard as I could. And it went about three inches. <laughs> and it dug itself in the mud, and it was spinning so madly that it popped out of the hole and went about three yards behind me. <laughs> It was an uh, amazing feat of uh, golf incompetence. <laughs> well, after my friend stopped laughing, he went over and he picked up the ball and he tossed it to me and said, here, take a mulligan. <laughs> well, I don't know about you. Some of you, are, some of you are avid golfers and you don't play mulligans, but the people I play with, we give ourselves mulligans. A mulligan is basically a do-over. That didn't count... Try it again. Try it in a different way. 
the first one doesn't count. It, it doesn't go towards your final score. You get a mulligan, a do-over. It's as if it never happened. John Ortberg has said a mulligan is a kind of grace note in an otherwise unforgiving game. <laughs> but I need mulligans in golf. <laughs> but I also need mulligans in life. I mean, you think about this. If, if, what if mulligans applied not only to golf but to life in general? Imagine you're not paying attention and you're, you're driving and you're going a little over the speed limit. You see the lights come on behind you. You pull over, the police officer comes and hands you a ticket and you rip it up and you say, I'm going to take my mulligan. <laughs> or maybe, maybe your check bounces at the bank and you tell them, well, I'll take my mulligan. They said, no problem. <laughs> or maybe you say something you shouldn't have to a friend. I'll take a mulligan, <laughs> a do-over. Maybe you botch a test or blow a presentation or forget an anniversary or, or just do something completely embarrassing. Just take a mulligan. <laughs> no questions asked. A do-over. I think we could all use mulligans at different times in our lives, couldn't we? I mean, sometimes the, the need for a mulligan can run even deeper than that. You make a choice, you go in a certain direction, you say something that hurts someone close to you, you fail as something that really matters to you personally. You feel deep regret, a profound level of guilt. You're not sure if the relationship will ever be the same again. I think we all could use a mulligan, a do-over at times in our lives. Unfortunately, there, if there's anything we tend to underestimate more than, <clears throat> than anything else, it's our need for God's forgiveness and his loving longing to forgive and renew and restore. You see, God's mercy and grace toward undeserving sinners is incomprehensible, and yet if we fail to have a heart that's willing to cry out to God for mercy, we will never know the depths of his love. This morning, I want, to, <clears throat> I want us to look at another king from the southern kingdom of Judah, whom I believe reveals not only the depths of our sin and depravity and separation from God, but the, but, but the heights of God's love and forgiveness and mercy. If you remember the last few weeks, we talked about the kingdom of Israel as one kingdom, and at one point, there was a division in the kingdom, and they were fighting against each other. And so you had the northern kingdom, the northern nation of Israel, of the ten tribes, and then you had this smaller kingdom below it in the southern part called Judah. And it's interesting because in the northern part called Israel, you had one evil, perverse king after another. And they progressively got worse and worse and worse until God grieved and he'd had enough of their rebellion. And they were taken off into captivity. The difference in Judah is that Judah had this mix of, of good and bad kings. And so the bad king would, would come along and he would build the pagan altars and worship other gods. And then a good king would come along and say, no, we're going to worship the Lord God exclusively. And he got rid of the pagan altars and they would return back to God. And it was this up and down, up and down mix of good and bad kings in Judah. Well, after the wicked reign of his father Ahaz, King Hezekiah brings the people back to God. 
And not only does he bring his own nation back to God, but the surrounding nations see what's going on and they begin to recognize the living Lord is truly the true God, the one and only God. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at Hezekiah's son, whose name was Manasseh. Manasseh had a great fortune left to him in his father's faith, but he refused it. You can follow along on the screen or you can turn to 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 33 if you have a Bible or your device. 2 Chronicles is sandwiched between 1 and 2 Kings and, and Ezra and Nehemiah. In the end of chapter 32, we read the end of Hezekiah's life. Hezekiah rested with his ancestors and was buried on the hill where the tombs of David's descendants are. All Judah and the people of Jerusalem honored him when he died. You see, Hezekiah had brought the nation from the brink of despair and destruction and had saved the nation. God had saved the nation through him. He was respected and loved by the people. And then Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. Manasseh, verse 1, was 12 years old when he became king. For the first few years, he was a co-ruler with his dad. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And we think about this, what happened? His dad was such a godly model of of faith and following God exclusively. And then his son comes along and reverses everything that he's done. You see, Manasseh not only, he stepped into his father's role, but not into his footsteps, and he begins to reverse 29 years of reform and revival that Hezekiah had brought to the nation. You see, Hezekiah had removed all the pagan high places of worship. Manasseh locates all the old sites, and he rebuilds them. Hezekiah chopped down the immoral Asherah poles. Manasseh hires artisans to craft new ones. Hezekiah had purified the temple and worship. Manasseh hauls one of his newly carved Asherah poles into the temple, linked with the worship of sex, in the very core of the temple, just feet away from a place called the Holy of Holies, a place representative of the living God's holy presence. Hezekiah had established this national revival, worshiping the living Lord God. Manasseh would make religious tolerance and diversity the new norm for the nation. And we continue to read, he erected altars to the Baals. He bowed down to the starry hosts and worshiped them. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. And so we have Baal and Asherah and, and, the, and the starry hosts, the skies. And, and then <clears throat> Manasseh's like, that's not enough. What about Moloch? He introduces the nation to the pagan god Moloch. He constructs a massive idol to be set up in the valley of Ben-Himmon, just outside the city of Jerusalem. Jewish writers describe a towering, hollow, bronze, and iron statue in human form with an ox's head. It was a symbol of strength and power. And there was a pit below the the idol that allowed for enormous fires which turned Moloch into this blazing furnace. 
And when the metal was glowing, was glowing cherry red and, and the chants and the drum beats reached a fevered pitch, worshipers would grab their children ages 4 to 12 and throw them into the center of the aisle, idol, burning them alive. In fact, archaeologists have found in this valley hundreds of urns containing the charred bones of children sacrificed to this demon god. Not only that, Manasseh thought it was such a progressive idea, he took some of his own wide-eyed little boys to the festivities in the valley and he came home alone. And the Bible goes on to record that the king practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists in the royal chambers where Hezekiah had consulted the prophet Isaiah and other men and women of God. Manasseh now held, now held counsel with witches and warlocks and mediums and members of the occult. And it became a place of extreme spiritual darkness. But not everyone was going along with this new worship. There were still men and women of God who wouldn't bow down to these pagan idols, who stayed faithful to the living Lord God. They stood firm. But the Bible goes on to tell us, moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. In fact, tradition tells us that Manasseh found the prophet of God, Isaiah, hiding in the hollow of a tree, so he ordered his soldiers to saw it in half with the prophet inside. He was a sick man. A sick man, and the nation followed these perversions wholeheartedly. Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. See, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken into captivity for their rebellion against God. Manasseh was now leading the southern kingdom of Judah into the same abyss, and the Lord God was grieved. You see, God, Manasseh was driving the people of God the wrong way. But you think, you know, how, how did they get there? I mean, what drove people to abandon the living Lord God that we had seen work miraculously and powerfully in the nation to these, to these man-made pagan gods and practices? You see, we've seen it again, and it seems surprising now here's the first question that we need to ask this morning. Am I passionate about the giver or am I driven by the gift? Am I passionate about the giver or driven by the gift? You see, the truth is the things of this world will never fully satisfy the human heart. The good things of this world are gifts from God meant to be enjoyed with a thankful heart and in submission to him and for his glory. The gift points to the giver. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the followers of Jesus in Rome when he said, yes, they knew God they, because God had made himself known through creation. But they wouldn't worship him as God or give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. 
And, then, and instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, when the gift replaces the giver or the created replaces the creator in our lives, we begin to fall into the same kind of idolatry. But no idol can infuse our life with meaning and worth or give us eternal hope like the living Lord God does. And so Solomon conveys in the book of Ecclesiastes, apart from a right relationship with God, our life is meaningless, it's futile. We were created in God's image, designed to worship and glorify him. You see, God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, Ecclesiastes 3.11, and a relationship with Jesus Christ is the only way to fulfill and to fill this longing for eternal things. All of our idolatrous pursuits that replace God, the giver and creator, leave us empty and unsatisfied. You see, this this God-shaped hole in all of us can only be filled by the giver and the creator himself, not the gifts. But but people try to fill the vacuum in their lives with with what things that they think will make them happy. And that was the way the people were with these pagan gods because these gods reflected a pursuit of the people's wants and desires. They were pragmatic, meaning I'll do what's needed to get what I want. These gods weren't worshipped for their intrinsic beauty or goodness, but for what they supposedly controlled, what they supposedly could give. Some were worshipped for the powers they were believed to possess and the benefits they gave. Others were hostile, unpredictable gods, were worshipped to appease their anger. The gods were viewed by the worshipers as a means to an end, to get what I want. You see, the pagan was always inclined to be on the lookout for a new god and and look for new gifts. All of these gods were, were stamped at the bottom, made by man. And they were created to appeal to their preferences and their desires. I want a god like this, so I'm going to carve a god like that. I'm going to set him in my house. I'm going to begin to pray to him. And these gods could be manipulated by using the right sacrifice, the right words, the right candles, the right offerings, the right stone, and you could appease and manipulate the god for what you wanted. And if they didn't, if if the god didn't deliver, you'd try something else or, or maybe create a new god or blame someone. So they continued to add more and more gods to meet their wants and needs. In fact, we read an example of this in Acts chapter 17, that is the apostle Paul is wandering through the streets of the city of Athens. And he's looking at all the idols and the statues to different gods. He comes across one that says, to an unknown god. (laughs) They were covering all their bases. Paul uses that very thing as an opportunity to point them to the exclusiveness of the living Lord God. We read a portion of a sermon that says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man, he made, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and human skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all peoples everywhere to repent, to turn to him. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, all of their worship revolved around what they could get from God. Their focus was on the gift, not on the giver. And so while the pagan gods were worshipped for what they were thought to be able to do, God is to be worshipped simply for who he is. While pagan worship was pragmatic, true worship views God as the great reward, not just a rewarder. And see, the fact is, the giver is our greatest gift. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 4, 6, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. We can pray with thanksgiving even before we've received an answer to our prayers because he himself is the answer we need. And that's why we pray, that's why prayer must, must be less about asking for things and more about enjoying someone. But Manasseh and the people of Judah turned their backs on the living God to pursue their own way to pursue their own ways. They tried to fill their empty lives with gods whom they perceived would give them what they wanted, what they deserved. It was wicked and perverse, and it grieved God. So we read his response in verse 11. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. You know, if this were the end of the story, this would be at the point in the movie where people would be like, yes, good story. He got what he deserved. Done. I think most of us with a bit of satisfaction and justice, would be happy that this would be the conclusion of the story. He, get, he got what he deserved. The, the, the hook in the nose was just icing on the cake. I mean, we like it when idiots who hurt people get what they deserve. And we cry for justice. And not content to take his own joyride through spiritual darkness, he had drug a whole nation with him. And perhaps if we were God on that day, we would have let him feel the heat of the furnace in which he had threw his kids. But we're not God, are we? <laughs> God is God and something profoundly disturbing happened one night in Manasseh's miserable little cell. 
the Bible says he repented. We read in verse 12, in his distress he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea, so he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. You see, despite all he had done, Manasseh was restored to the throne and allowed to finish his reign with dignity and honor. <laughs> and we think, what, what, do we, what do we do with that? I mean, the cynical side of me was like, you know, was that real? <laughs> Did he really repent? Or was it just a cry of mercy from someone who was undergoing extreme punishment? But again, something happened in the darkness of his prison. Something clicked within this wicked, depraved man's soul. He lived his formative years under the rule of his, his, of his father, Hezekiah. He'd seen what living by faith in the living Lord God looked like. He had, ser- he had seen and heard and, and watched his dad talk to God in worship and prayer. He's far from those days, but now he's looking back on those days, and the tears began to flow with remorse. And his whispered confession, his cry out to God for mercy, his honest-to-God prayer was heard and embraced. In fact, we read in this passage, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord as God. Literally, it can be read, he reached out to smooth the face of the Lord. He reached out to touch God. And God, instead of recoiling in disgust and revulsion, God let his heart be moved. He humbled himself greatly before God. Humility is is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so when I humble myself before God, I'm acknowledging, acknowledging I can't do this on my own. My strength, my wisdom, my vision, it's not enough. I need God to move and work in me. And so the question becomes, am I desperate for God or am I satisfied with me? Am I satisfied with myself? You see, I may not be where I want to be, but if I'm satisfied with what I can do on my own without God, I will never cry out to him for help. If in my arrogance I I don't see the need for forgiveness, if I fail to recognize what's not right in my life, I'll never learn what it means to be broken and filled by the living God. I I want you to think about this. I want you to think about a jar or a vase that's that's been broken. And then it's been glued back together. It looks somewhat the same, but it has all these cracks and and holes in it. And and most of us would look at it and say, that's trash. And we would throw it in the pile. We would throw it in the can. And the amazing thing is, is that God goes over to that can. He reaches in. He grabs that broken vessel. And he sees it as an opportunity to keep pouring himself into that life. You see, when I'm broken, I become desperate for God and I cry out to him in humility. 
You see, foundational to the attitude of humil- humility is talking and talking to God are several realizations. The first is, I am so deeply flawed and sinful, and yet, <clears throat> despite of that, deeply loved and valued by God. I recognize there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. I'm a sinful, imperfect person standing before a holy, perfect God, and yet God offers his favor as a gift. I recognize through Jesus' payment on the cross for my sins, I've been, I've been cleansed and forgiven for all my sin, and I'm now a child of God. I recognize my limitations and, and my desperate need for God's resources, strength, wisdom, empowerment, compassion to accomplish what he's called me to do and live and think and be. But as long as I'm arrogant and demanding, I'll never experience the life God has created for me. And when we humble ourselves before him, our eyes become open to the glory and power of God. We see ourselves in perspective as as creatures and God as creator. We see ourselves unworthy, made worthy in Christ. We see all of our failures and inconsistencies, our our cracks and our holes as, as spaces through which God's grace is revealed in and through our lives. We listen to the words of Isaiah, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble, revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. It fascinates me because God is telling us, I dwell, in, I dwell in the high and holy place, the giver, sustainer, creator, sovereign Lord over everything, separated from us in his glory and perfection. He's transcendent. We worship him in his power and his might and his glory. However, he also has another, he dwells, he lives with those who are broken and humble. He lives with those who are humble in heart. God hears and responds to the cries of those who say, Lord, I can't, but you can. Just like the thief nailed to the cross next to Jesus, Manasseh's hands were bound. Neither could lift a hand to save themselves. They both had nothing to bring to him. There was no other way but through the mercy and grace of God. We don't know what words Manasseh spoke to God that day, but we do know the attitude in which he approached God in his desperation. He turned to God and offered him the only thing that he had, his life, his brokenness. And he found the end of himself and the beginning of a desperate dependence on God. You see, we tend to focus on the words that we bring to the table when we talk to God in prayer. But I wonder if most of all, God desires a heart of humility. A heart of humility that recognizes him for who he really is and and what I really am. I love this paraphrase. It's a familiar prayer that King David prayed as he came to terms with his own sin and turned to God in Psalm 51. Going through the motions doesn't please you, God. A flawless performance is nothing to you. 
I learned God worship when my pride was shattered, heart-shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice. It leads to the next question, and that is, am I hoping for mercy or living under grace? Am I hoping for mercy or am I living under grace? You see, because it would have been mercy better than Manasseh deserved if God had allowed him to live out his days in that dungeon. It would have been mercy if Manasseh had been allowed to go back to the countryside of Judah and been a lowly shepherd. It would have been mercy if he'd been allowed to return to Jerusalem as a beggar. It would have been mercy if he had actually been permitted back into the palace as a servant or slave. But God went beyond mercy. Something happened in that dank dungeon, something unbelievably powerful and unfathomable happened when Manasseh reached out to the Lord in humility. He tapped into the immeasurable depths of God's grace. You see, mercy, mercy meant he didn't receive the punishment he deserved. He was given a mulligan. He was given a do-over. Grace means he did receive the favor and kindness and blessing of God by which he no means deserved. And so how did Manasseh respond to God's grace, his mercy? He responded in the way the Apostle Paul said, we we all must respond to Jesus. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Manasseh's heart had been changed, and as a response of that transformation, he rebuilt the outer wall. He removed the pagan altars. He got rid of the foreign gods, restored the altar of the Lord, and encouraged the people to serve the Lord exclusively. And you see, all of these actions were prompted by a changed heart for God. He had hoped for mercy, received it, is now living under grace. The reality is it was, it was too late to save the nation from impending judgment. But also Manasseh did everything he could to turn things back to God. And he wrapped up his career as God's man. You know, it's kind of a storybook ending as a result of God's mercy and grace. But I don't know about you, when I first read this story, it bothered me. (laughs) Was justice really done here? I mean, it's all well and good that Manasseh was restored to power. He got back his throne, his royal robes, everything else that went along with being king. But what about his victims? What about the voices of the little ones crying out as they were thrown into the fiery belly of that idol? What about those faithful to God who were, who were slaughtered for that faith? What about the people left behind to grieve and pick up the pieces of their shattered lives? Is it right that Manasseh should be shown such immeasurable mercy and grace? You see, God's grace messes up with us, doesn't it? Especially when it's for someone else, especially when God's grace is for someone like Manasseh. Should he have been given a mulligan in life? 
Shouldn't God have required more? Shouldn't God in his justice have required a payment for all that Manasseh had done? And the truth is, God did require a heavy price to be paid. You see, a few short miles from the valley of Ben-Himmon, where Manasseh sacrificed his boys to the fire, an innocent man was also sacrificed. Another son felt the heat, not of the fire, not of the flame, but his own father's wrath against our sin. Another son writhed in pain and died while people stood and mocked him. But the difference is this son, he went willingly for us. This son's death wasn't to appease the bloodlust blood lust of a demon god, but to pay the price for a debt that we couldn't pay. To pay the price for our forgiveness and, and offer us reconcilia- reconciliation, peace with a holy God. And part of the tab that dark Friday on a hill called Calvary was run up by a king named Manasseh, but it wasn't the whole tab. Because I have my own charges on that bill. And it seems like every day I I add more to it. But Jesus took my debt, a debt I could never repay along with Manasseh's, and he paid it all. (laughs) He rescued me from what I deserved. That's mercy. He gave me a mulligan, a a do-over. I cried out to him in humility, recognizing my desperate need for him, and he rescued me. And that is amazing in and of itself. And in and of itself, that would have been enough. But our God goes beyond mercy. He elevated me to a relationship as a son, as a child of God. That's grace. And as an heir of God and a fellow heir with Jesus, that's that's how I want to live. I want to live under his grace, not just hope for mercy. He's given me everything I need because the giver has gifted me with himself. It leads to the final question. Am I coming to God in his name or am I coming to God in my own name? You see, I think one of the things that many of us struggle with when approaching God in prayer is is guilt. And we think to ourselves, you know, God surely doesn't want to talk to me after what I said, after what I did, after what I thought. God doesn't want to talk to me. I, I, I wouldn't want to talk to me either. And so if we talk to him at all, we, we do so with a dog with its, with its ears pinned and pressed down and its tail between its legs. But we think, the, we think about the opposite of that, perhaps, but maybe... Would you have a problem approaching God if you had just talked to someone about Jesus, you had just served someone sacrificially, if you had just had a, a tremendous, fantastic Bible study? Would you have a problem approaching God? Probably not. But we think about that response because I think it reflects something within us that's gone wrong in our prayer lives. 
You see, we often end our prayers with a, with a phrase, in Jesus' name. And I think many of us, it becomes a tagline that we know we're supposed to say when it should mean something so much more for us. It's why we can talk to God at all. It's, it's, it's through Jesus and his name and all that he is that we've been forgiven and have a relationship with our creator, God. But too often, instead of, of praying with the authority and provision of all who Jesus is in his name, in my naive arrogance, I pray in my own name. And when I pray in my own name, I approach God with, with, with hesitancy and reluctance. When I pray in my own name, I feel inadequate and unworthy because I am. And I pray with this reluctance and regret and fear and doubt and guilt and hesitancy because I've forgotten the extravagant and scandalous grace that allows me to approach him with confidence. You see, the evil one loves to tell us lies. He will lie to you and say, you've gone too far. God's not going to listen to you. You've done too much. You've said too much. You've thought too much. You're not, God doesn't want to listen to you. Don't even bother to come to him with anything. You're through. You're done. You're mine. And Manasseh proves to us that Satan is a liar. If Manasseh would have prayed in his own name, his, na his naive arrogance would have kept him where he was. Instead, he prayed in humble recognition and confidence that only God could rescue him. Only God could extend him in the mercy and the grace that he needed. And so Manasseh proves to us that what the Bible says about God is true. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call on you. You see, when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray in reliance and dependence on all that he is and all that he wants most for us and himself. It's a recognition that, that we have a special relationship with him, that, that all that we are and will be is because of him. It's never too late to change. It's never too late to experience the mercy and grace of our God. Let's pray. Father, I certainly don't deserve to stand here. But Father, I thank you that you sent your son to pay for my tab, to pay for the debt that I owed that I could never repay. And so it's by grace that I stand here this morning. Not anything in and of myself, but only in you, wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, do I stand before you and humbly talk to you as a privilege to know that I can boldly approach the throne of God with confidence because it's a throne of grace. And you've given me, you've given us so much more than we deserve. Father, I pray that we would recognize that, that we would pray in Jesus' name in recognition of, of who he is and what he's done for us 
and not in my arrogance pray in my own name thinking that that I'm enough. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We humble ourselves before you and our brokenness. And thank you that you continue to fill us with yourself, with your life, overflowing. (laughs) Father, thank you. I love you too. It's in all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.